Welcome to the Liz Career Coaching Podcast. My name is Liz Herrera and I am your host, career coach, and job search ally. People strive to find career happiness, purpose, and satisfaction, and yet end up in a career path that does not align with their goals and overall purpose. If you are launching your career or ready for your next career move, this podcast will empower you to pave your path and take the action steps to get you where you need to be. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Liz Career Coaching Podcast. My name is Liz Herrera and I'm your host. If you're a frequent listener, you have heard me express many times that as a career coach, I have had the privilege to meet with so many mission-driven individuals, making an impact in their communities and allowing me to hear their stories. Today, it is an honor to have an incredible guest that has an inspiring story and is here to share how a life-changing event redirected her career purpose. Ana Calix was pursuing her master's degree in public health and working in perinatal care to improve outcomes for moms and babies when her first child was stillborn on his due date. Her profession became her passion, and she founded a nonprofit, Gifts from Liam, aimed at helping babies thrive in pregnancy and beyond by increasing access to life-saving education and resources. Anna, thank you so much for being a guest on my show and for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you. It's uh, pretty amazing how much our paths have crossed in different capacities over the years. So I am very happy to be here chatting with you today. No, absolutely. Yes, we've known each other for for quite some time. (laughs) Uh, And and I was so excited and happy to hear that uh, what you're doing. I didn't know that you had started this nonprofit. And I thought, wow, you know, what an inspirational story and even your, your, your personal backstory uh, and that you are willing to share, share it with us today. Uh, so can you take us back to when you were in the process of pursuing your master's in public health? What were your career goals back then? Yeah. So, and to explain that, I have to go back a little bit to me coming to the United States. I uh, was born and raised in Honduras and Honduras and um, came to the United States for college with the plan of ultimately becoming a doctor, a medical doctor. And so in college, I studied pre-medicine and biology. And then I added on a third major in communication studies because that's how I am. But (laughs) As I was preparing to go to medical school and learning about the the healthcare system in the United States, I was realizing that it wasn't really the field that I needed to be in because what I wanted to do was to improve outcomes, improve health for all. And I slowly was learning over time through my academic experiences, as well as internship experiences and general just experience living and, and, and being in the United States, that it was public health that I really was interested in pursuing. And so I started learning more about the field of public health. It's not a field that really exists very much in, in Honduras, and, um, or at least at the time it did, it wasn't very strong. Um, so I didn't know about public health. And I didn't know what that meant. And then I was learning more and more about the field of public health and what that meant and how that was much more aligned with my career goals, my the goals for my life, really. And that all stemmed from a car accident that I was in when I was eight years old um, that I knew I was patient both in Honduras and the United States um, in recovering from that accident. And so I saw the vast disparities between the, between the third world country, Honduras, and between the care that I received in the United States and realizing at a very young age how inequitable that was, how unfair that was, that people who don't have access to coming to the United States for treatment would have, in my case, lost their leg, lost their life probably. Um, But I did have the privilege of being able to come to the United States and receive a higher level of quality care that saved both my life and my leg. So that 
when you mentioned, you know, with, with my son dying, my profession became my passion. But even from a young age, my goals in life and my career always stemmed from a, from a place of a personal experience that I was very passionate about. So I was, um, you know, learning about the field of public health. I started getting into that field since college, um, did an internship in, in the public health field. And then I um, was in AmeriCorps teaching HIV AIDS education to youth in DC. Um, and then um, all those experiences combined really solidified my understanding and belief that that public health was what I wanted to pursue. I continued on um, then with my, my first interaction with the UIC School of Public Health was pers pursuing a certificate in public health management. And then, you know, if I didn't already have enough confirmation that this was my field, I was like, okay, I liked the courses, I excelled in the courses, like I'm going to go ahead and pursue my master's degree in public health. And serendipitously um, was connected to someone who was hiring in the perinatal center um, in the field of maternal child health and public health. And that came with the tuition waiver. So I was like, well, this is perfect. I can do my master's now. Um, and it's, it, I'd be working also simultaneously in the field of public health, even though at the time I didn't necessarily have a, a particular interest or passion in maternal child health. Um, the uh, still being in overall the field of public health was, was definitely of interest to me. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're pursuing your MPH and then you experience this personal tragedy. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that experience and, and how that led to what you currently do today at your nonprofit? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so I was working full-time at the perinatal center. I was a student pursuing my master's degree um, as a board member for the Minority Students for the Advancement of Public Health, MSAP. Um, mm. So I was active in the School of Public Health as well as a, a student um, within the student body. I'm very open about the fact that my pregnancy was unplanned. You know, I was in a position in my life where um, I was kind of living and pursuing this American dream that I had come to the United States for from Honduras. Um, you know, I was in a good job pursuing my master's. I loved where I lived. I was a dancer at the time. I had a great, you know, social capital, um, kind of all these things that that I was I was proud of and others are proud of me for accomplishing at that point in my life. Having a baby at the time was not on my radar. And in fact, I was ready to leave the relationship I was in. And then I got knocked up. So then I had to um, make the decision of um, maybe this isn't the right time, but like <laughs> the right political climate to, to talk about my uh, reproductive choices. But I, but I am pro-choice. And I so I considered, well, am I going to continue this pregnancy or not? Um, I decided that given my circumstances, um, I did ultimately have a desire to be a mom in my life. I thought, well, you know, why not? I'm pregnant and everything else is going well. I can do this. Um, I'm going to have this baby. And so then I went into mom mode. And um, one of the, th the one of the, the um, concepts I advocate for is that uh, you really become a parent as soon as you find out you're pregnant. And it starts with that initial decision. Um, I decided I'm going to become mom. I start planning uh, my pregnancy, my life, my life with my baby. You know, you start daydreaming about where are they going to college? You know, what are they, what, what is their life plan going to be from the moment you find out you're pregnant? I moved um, out of the apartment I was living in, in the city, um, into a, a home, um, in the south suburbs where I have relatives to be closer to family. Um, and, you know, I had three baby showers. I planned everything out. I was researching all the things and I was overly prepared to, to bring a baby into this world um, who I knew was going to be loved and care, cared for. And I didn't have a concern about not being able to um, you know, meet my baby's needs in any way, even though it's not like I was a wealthy person, I was comfortable. I was, I was going to be okay. I knew I'd be okay. And even if I found myself in a position where I was struggling, I knew that I had friends, family, I had that network of support who would always be there for me. Um, meeting 
my baby's basic needs was never, or not being able to meet my basic baby's basic needs wasn't something that really crossed my mind. And so in addition to having, you know, being fully prepared on my own and having that level of privilege as far as, as my personal resources, um, I also was working in the perinatal center. And um, through that professional experience, I learned all the things about pregnancy. I was a perfect patient. I knew everything you needed to do, everything you shouldn't do. I had access to, you know, OB nurses, doctors, maternal fetal medicine specialists at my fingertips, any kind of concern or question that I had could be answered immediately. So I really had, you know, I was perfectly positioned to have a great pregnancy, great pregnancy outcome. And then even so my baby died unexpectedly a couple days before his due date. Um, everything was totally fine. And then, you know, one day I wake up, he didn't, things didn't feel right. He didn't feel the same. He wasn't moving the same. Um, I brought up my concern to my providers who were very dismissive of my concern, very mm. nonchalant about it, chalked it up to, oh, you're almost at your due date. You're probably running out of room, which is a myth. I don't want anyone listening to think that that's a thing that actually happens. Babies um, movements shouldn't change so dramatically at the end of a pregnancy and running out of room isn't a thing that happens, um, which despite all the knowledge that I had acquired through my experience with my job, I had never been pregnant before. I didn't know what it really felt like. So I called the people who I'm supposed to trust with my life and my baby's life to express my concern. And my concern was dismissed and told mm, everything's fine. The next day I call back again and um, they said still very dismissively, not, not concerned, unbothered entirely by me bringing up this concern to say, oh, well, you know, if you want, you can come get checked out. Um, you know, we'll be here. It's fine. And I'm like, well, I'm really far away now because again, I moved halfway through my pregnancy. So my provider was on the North side of Chicago and I had, was living in the South suburbs and this is, you know, rush hour on a Tuesday morning, um, in Chicago. So like, it's going to take me a long time to get there. Um, and then of course, you know, I arrived, it took a long time to check me in and, um, was told that, that my baby no longer had a heartbeat, which is, you know, the worst thing that, a parent can be told is that their, their child has died. I can't even, I can't even begin to imagine Anna, that experience, but also that, like you said, you had that educational background and that training and that understanding, but this is your first time. And so going through this personal experience, but also have, you know, wearing those multiple hats, like, well, I, I, I know all this. And so this has, I would imagine that this has also impacted the work that you do in public health is to educate communities because not everyone, you know, I can think about people that can't even speak the, you know, the language and being able to self-advocate. Um, and like you said, you know, we trust our, our healthcare providers. Uh, so you have all these things happening. And so, so, you know, this experience happened. So what happened with, with school and, and, and thereafter? Yeah. And I just want to say that you, or you hit the nail on the head, right. With saying like, I did have all the things going for me, the education, the resources, the tools, the knowledge, even so my baby died. And absolutely. So how many babies are dying because they don't have access to education, knowledge, resources, tools, quality healthcare. And we see that across the spectrum in all types of healthcare issues and all types of causes of mortality at large, not just with babies in adults in senior, you like, you name it, right? Like we see that there is a clear inequity that boils down to those factors, right? To those social determinants of health that we talk mm -hmm. about in public health. And so that same theme that we see across the board in all aspects of health and mortality carries into pregnancy and infant loss and where, where you see communities that lack access to resources, education, knowledge, tools, quality, healthcare, transportation, et cetera, et cetera, more babies are dying. So it's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't take uh, much to put those pieces of that puzzle together and, and attribute more babies dying to those, those factors. Um, so, yeah, so that's, 
where I was professionally and personally when that happened to me. And so that's why I say with this other, you know, next trauma of my life, like, okay, now my, my profession had been working in perinatal care, improving outcomes for moms and babies on an administrative clinical side. In my role, I did a lot of data analysis on perinatal morbidity and mortality statistics. So I was literally studying the reasons why babies die and doing that data analysis. And I would prepare the cases for review. I would sit in on reviews. Of course, the reviews are conducted by the, the clinical staff. It always um, bothered me that it stopped at assessing the cause of the death. I'm like, okay, that's great. You're assigning it a cause, which I didn't always agree with or think that they were really looking at all the necessary factors with my public health hat on, right? And I'm like, but what about also with that public health lens? Like, what about preventing this Mm -hmm. from happening in the future? What are we doing to prevent? What are we doing to prevent? And to me, it didn't seem like we were doing enough in terms of prevention. So then it happened to me and I'm like, I know there's a me at another perinatal center putting my data into this database, analyzing it, preparing my case review. I know that my case is going to be reviewed by a panel of clinicians. I know what they're going to say because they say the same things all the time. I know they're going to say, well, she should have come in sooner. Well, she should have Mm. called sooner. Well, she should have been paying attention to this, that, and the other. It's like, but I did those things. Of course, those things aren't recorded in my chart accurately because I did retrieve my medical record. And these are all things that like someone with that sort of academic professional experience can and would do. But again, going back to to those folks, the majority of people losing babies, they're not me. Right. And so became my passion. And so now I advocate for for uh, perinatal and infant loss prevention for birth justice birth equity, um, with all the knowledge that I have and paired with my experience makes my, my voice very unique in this space. And, um, you know, I can, I really feel compelled to, and, and honored to be that voice for the moms and babies who can't advocate for themselves in this way. Yeah. And so, you know, you could have easily just said, you know, this is going to be part of my work, part of my mission. And you could have pursued a career in working at a maternal and child health organization or continuing on, you know, with the research or going, you know, doing something um, in, in health education. But instead, you go on and you create this non for profit gifts from Liam. Can you talk about how that you know, how, how that process came along and that you, when did you decide this is what I'm going to do? How, how did you even get started? I didn't want to, <laughs> I pushed, <laughs> I pushed back on starting a nonprofit for a long time. Um, it was, it, it has been a, a beautiful and challenging process. And it wasn't like I woke up the day after Liam was born and said, well, I'm going to start a nonprofit now and fix all of this. It started with me just finding ways to create memories with a baby who isn't here, finding a way to try to fill that void, try to, you know, moms who moms are birthing people who have lost babies, uh, experience empty arm syndromes where their arms Mm -hmm. literally physically ache because they want to be holding their baby. Uh, we experience phantom kicks where we think that like the, we still feel like the baby's kicking in our belly, even though there's no baby there. And, and granted that the phantom kicks happen even when a baby's live born. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's very triggering when it happens and your baby isn't in your arms. And um, so I was on my, my motherhood journey, my, my bereaved motherhood journey. I had never heard the term bereaved before becoming a bereaved parent. And then it was everywhere. And, you know, she's a bereaved bereaved parent. I'm a bereaved parent. Come to this bereaved parents group. There's a bereaved parent ceremony. And I'm like, what does that word even mean? And then I could go on a whole nother podcast talking about the words we use to describe death and and dying, especially in the perinatal space. Uh, But anyways, I just 
was trying to find purpose in his death, purpose in in give meaning to his death and make memories with my baby who wasn't here and figure out how am I going? I am a mom. I had a baby. I carried a baby. I delivered him. He was born. I'm a mom. But how do I experience motherhood without my baby here? And so it was a, my own sort of learning process. And it started with donating my breast milk after he was born. And then I went home to all his things. And it seemed like such a waste to have all these baby things and no baby and knowing there's so many babies and families out there that are struggling to provide for their babies that I started donating his things and some things you have less of emotional attachment to than others for example diapers so I had a collection of diapers I was ready for his arrival you know he was he was born on his due date so of course we had everything prepared we had all the things so in fact we had like three households full of baby things started donating that and started just small sort of acts of kindness in his memory. And then what I say the start of Gifts from Liam is, is the first diaper drive, which was held um, for what would have been his first birthday. I wanted to celebrate that. I wanted to honor that in some way, but I wasn't going to have a traditional birthday party for a child who isn't here. Some people do, totally fine, but that didn't feel comforting to me. So I tried to find some other way to do that. And so somehow come across the diaper gap and diaper need. And what that refers to is the fact that one in three families in the United States can't afford enough diapers for their babies. And that blew my mind because up until that point, I had not heard of diaper need. I didn't know there was a diaper gap. Mm -hmm. And again, not something I was ever worried about for my baby. I had planned to cloth diaper Liam. Even so, I was I was never it never crossed my mind that I wouldn't be a, be able to afford enough of the most basic essential item for every single baby. Broke my heart that there are people in that gap who experience diaper need and who spend their days thinking about where am I going to get a diaper for my baby instead of caring for their babies. And if you are in that gap, there, there must be so many other layers to and challenges that you're facing that just adds to your inability to provide the level of care for your baby that, that you want to give them. And you can't because you're operating and, you know, just trying to meet basic needs. You're in survival mode. So that's where I got the idea of, okay, well, I'm going to host the diaper drive for his first birthday talk to people about diaper need and the diaper gap. And this is crazy. And how is there, how is there a diaper gap and learning that programs like WIC don't necessarily cover diapers and you can't buy diapers with snap and um, Mm. all these other mind blowing facts to me about diaper need. I'm like, people need to know this. And the, I didn't know what to expect from that diaper drive. And the response was overwhelmingly, positive, successful. We collected about 20,000 diapers in that very first drive. So, so then it's like, okay, well, what do I do with these diapers? And I had previously donated Liam's diapers from, from when we were planning to bring him home. I donated them to a local organization. That's a social service agency that's been around for decades and decades, well-established in the community. Um, And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to break these down, make it, equitable for everyone. Everyone's going to get the same amount and we're going to include educational information on how to take care of your baby in pregnancy and, you know, the important things like safe sleep and tummy time and not smoking in pregnancy and all that educational component. And we're going to put them in the bundles of the diapers. And we came up with 25 because that's what most daycares require for a week of daycare. And if you can't provide the diapers to the daycare, then you can't go to work and you're sort of stuck in that vicious cycle. So we did that and we distributed them to this one agency. And then since then, you know, those, those partnerships expanded and started distributing to more and more. We had 20,000 diapers to give away. We had a a lot to to spread around the love and um, we kept doing the diaper drives and 
the programming also expanded. And then I started, you know, participating in different committees and boards um, and developing other partnerships with other aspects of our programming. And so over time, as things are growing and expanding, and it's really truly that sort of like snowball effect of what is now gifts from Liam, um, people kept nudging me, you know, you should become a nonprofit. You should really become a nonprofit. And I never wanted to collect monetary donations because I'm like, it's just me. It's just, you know, it's for Liam and I'm not comfortable asking for money. Well, become a nonprofit and then you can ask for money. I'm like, ah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> this is good. Once you become a nonprofit, it's a whole extra challenge of being official and things you have to do and you have to really get serious. And I'm also working, you know, I'm, I've continued to work full-time throughout all of this and, you know, having other sort of smaller side jobs as well. Um, and, you know, I'm a bereaved mom and that in itself is a job working through that grief and, and that healing journey. Um, and then I was, I became pregnant with my second child nine months after having Liam. So there's only a short window when I wasn't uh, actively mothering a baby. And then that second pregnancy was very challenging. So for one reason or another, I kept pushing back on the nonprofit. But I always say, as you know, people talk about it's God's plan or divine intervention or the universe. I always say it's Liam. Liam keeps mm. putting things in my path and creating these opportunities. And that one wouldn't stop. So finally, I said, all right. I got a little micro grant to apply for um, the 501c3. And then I got a second offer for someone to, to cover the cost of doing that. Um, and I was like, all right, all right, all right. I, <laughs> I'll do it. Like, I, I, I hear you, Liam. Um, and then that's how Gifts from Liam became a nonprofit. It just was one of the many opportunities that Liam has put in my path that I feel like I feel like he's the boss and I'm just, yeah. you know, he's giving me all the directions and I'm, I'm just working for him. And, um, you know, this is, this is the, the meaning, the purpose that his life and, and death has. Wow. And I thank you for, for sharing that, that, that journey and that process and reliving it and telling your story. And, and I know you've been telling the story through, through your, your initiatives and, and your projects to really raise awareness. Some of the things that really stand out to me is that here you are, this mom, right? That's the first thing. And you're going through the grieving process, but it's so interesting how as you're trying to navigate this situation, you, you know, you're like, how do I celebrate his birthday? And you're online and figuring out that way. But as you're trying to, like you said, heal and go through that process, it's like you're encountering, you know, information. So the diaper gap, uh, and all these other things that kind of start unveiling that and and you're kind of and it's it's like almost inevitable right that it's innate where that public health hat turns on for you and you're like oh how can I address this how can I do this and that's why I feel like your story is so inspirational because you're going through it but at the same time you're thinking about how do you help other people that are going through something similar especially the underserved communities, people that don't have access kind of gives you that it, that it shed light. Even as a public health professional, there were things that you were like, oh, I didn't even know this existed. Um, exactly. And, and I love how you say that and it's Liam, you know, kind of pulling you and saying like, all right. And, and so all these things that have, you know, even though you've resisted um, because it's a lot of work starting a nonprofit. And you alluded to it a little bit, and I want to, I really want to make sure that we talk about this, but this is not your full-time job. Anna, can you talk about what you do full-time, like what you, your, where you make your money? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I am doing, uh, you know, this is, this is my motherhood journey with Liam. So I am doing this um, for free as my, as I parent my uh, living child as well for free. Um, so uh yeah, I, when I, you know, was first pregnant with Liam and then I stayed at the perinatal center for, for a few years after having Liam and as well as into having my second child, um, I left the perinatal center for a unique opportunity to run an ice cream equipment business. So total 180 from my public health, healthcare career. It was a fun, you know, new 
novel opportunity. I learned a lot, a lot of transferable skills as well um, that wore out. The novelty wore off relatively quickly. And I was like, I want to get back into like my public health stuff. And I was doing gifts from Liam at the time, but it wasn't that it wasn't a nonprofit yet. It was my, my mothering journey. Um, I, I, at that, that job, that role serendipitously ended with COVID. Um, at the same time that that job ended because of COVID gifts from Liam was really blowing up because there was such an increased need for diapers. And despite the fact that gifts from Liam, even at the time had sort of different programs, like there's also you know, offering bereavement support. I was supporting other families who had experienced this loss, especially underserved populations, for example, Spanish speakers. Um, I, and, and you know, the educational component that we were focusing on as well. I was, I was largely known for the diapers. So many more people are in need of diapers during COVID that gifts from Liam really starts getting a lot more requests. And normally our annual diaper drive for diaper need awareness week was sufficient to supply our existing partners with diapers for the year. Um, you know, as needed is upon request whenever they request them. But we very quickly ran out of our diaper drive supply in 2020 because of COVID. So we had to get creative about other ways to bring in diaper donations because all the diapers that we give away to the community are diaper donations that we have received. Um, so we started hosting other sort of mini drives and uh, different ways of bringing in those diaper donations. COVID, how did I, I just, I started taking on other sort of side hustles to bring in more money. Um, and then I ended up getting plugged into the world of medical writing, which was also kind of a natural progression in my healthcare public health career, because I've always been sort of this writer, editor, always, you know, the one friends ask for, can you look over my essay or my resume or this or that? So I've always been apparently a strong writer. And um, a former colleague of mine was the one who kept suggesting to me, like, you should get into medical writing, you should get into medical writing. I wasn't really interested in it since I was at the perinatal center. I was like, no, but then um, I needed a position that was remote um, even since before COVID just because of my son's school schedule. And then I learned more about medical writing, got plugged into an opportunity with medical writing. And that is what I have been doing for the last couple years now. Uh, my full-time job is as a, a medical writer. Yes. And I wanted to make sure that people knew this, right? So you are a full-time medical writer, you are a mom, and you are managing this non a very successful non-for-profit. How do you find that balance? How do you manage all of these uh, responsibilities, this, this life of yours? How do you do it? By having meetings and interviews in my car. <laughs> So yes, I, we want to point out two other things. <laughs> if you watch this, um, this interview uh, through the YouTube channel, you'll see that Anna is actually in her car. Uh, we're having this interview. And so I know that this is and, and I and we giggled at the beginning, right? Because you're like, well, this is this is my life. And, and right. I honestly, I'm like, wow, she's actually making time for this, knowing all the things that you have going on in your life. So that's why I'm like so grateful that you did take the time and that you're hanging out in your car um, in the evening, uh, spending time with me and sharing your story. But other than that, what are some other things? Because, you know, people, there are people out there that want to do, you know, to start up their, their not-for-profit or, or they have other aspirations, but how, how do you manage it? Yeah, I mean, what, one thing I say is that we we all have the same amount of time in the day. And it's really just about managing and balancing your priorities and identifying what your priorities are. Once I decided I'm going to have this official nonprofit <clears throat> and run this nonprofit, and also until I can actually get paid from the nonprofit, have to have, you know, another job, um, I'm... You know, I'm, a, I'm a single parent to my living child. Um, so I, I have to manage, right? I have to, I don't have a choice. I do have a choice to like, well, I could just stop doing gifts from Liam. I could choose to 
not parent my four-year-old well. Um, we all have those choices, but that's what it's about. Like, what choices are you making? What priorities are you establishing in your life? And I do, I am guilty of multitasking like now. And I try to be planful and organized. And I, I think most people would say I am. Um, and I think some of these, you and I had a conversation about this before too. Like, I think a big part of my success in being able to manage all these various roles and hats that I wear is, is like the soft skills that I have. Like it is the time management. It is the, the, the organizational capacity that I have. It is my attention to detail. It's my uh, ability to listen and retain information. Um, and then a, a recent one that I pointed out to you is curiosity. Um, a lot of soft skills that, that aren't talked about as much as they should be and, and highlighted as like very vital skills in being able to be successful, whether you're running a nonprofit or just in your life in general. And I know that you can relate to, to a lot of this as well, because you're also where, you know, you're, you're interviewing me for a podcast right now at almost, you know, seven o'clock at night on a weekday. And you also have a full-time job and you have other roles as well. So um, mainly, mainly it all boils down to the priorities. What are your priorities and what can you or do you need to realign, rearrange, reprioritize in order to accomplish the goals that you set for yourself? Yeah. And really, you know, like you said, what is the motivation behind it? But really tapping into your skills. I love hearing that, right? That it's the the soft skills, the essential skills that many of us undervalue but wow, the power that they have, and it gives you this ability to be able to run and manage a nonprofit that you care. I mean, obviously it's very rooted into your, your personal life, but also being great at what you do as a medical writer. And I know this because I know you and I have, we have crossed paths in, in, in that other capacity and I, and, and the people that you work with just, just speak so highly of you. So I know that you are also thriving in that career Anna, can you share what are some of the things that you've learned about yourself in, in this journey? Um, you're asking me to be vulnerable here. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that you're comfortable sharing, of course. I have learned the importance of those soft skills um, and learned to value those more about myself because I didn't think I was that unique or, or special because I retained information. But as more and more people comment on that and point that out to me, I'm like, okay, that is something I, I should value more about myself and I should highlight about myself. I have learned to be more open to other people's opinions. It's, it's not always, you know, my way or the highway, even if it is my nonprofit, my baby, I don't know all the things my way isn't always right. I don't, I can certainly benefit from other people's outside people's opinions and experience. Um, asking for help, accepting help has been a, a big learning curve. Um, it's very easy for me to uh, ask for help when it relates to the nonprofit, but as a individual, and I think that that is grounded in a lot of like culture, being a woman, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're, we're, we're female Latinas. Like we can do it all by ourselves. We don't need anybody to help us and we can't and like accept that. <laughs> it's okay to ask for help. Learning how, how much priorities matter, how important that is. And I had a huge awakening with COVID that I was prioritizing the ice cream business over my two-year-old at the time. He was, you know, his school shut down. He was home from school. I was still trying to keep up with my, how it was more than, you know, I was always on with that business over some period of time as, you know, COVID's a blur for everyone. Right. But it was like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm, literally giving my clients and this business more importance than 
quality time with my son and not even quality time, like doing more than just meeting his basic needs. And that's not okay. Right. Like as a mom, that should be my first concern, my first priority. And so that was where I really learned about the importance and value of, of, uh, you know, realigning priorities. I learned something recently about, um, the idea of setting only one goal for the day for yourself, mm. like accomplish one thing and everything else beyond that is kind of a bonus. Yeah. And I want to try and practice that. It sounds really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> We're an overachiever. Yes. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> um, but that somehow you actually end up being like more productive. Learned about my leadership skills or lack thereof areas that I need to improve on as a leader. I've learned about uh, my ability to be a public speaker and areas that need improvement. Um, but I've all, all, in all these things that I've learned about myself that are strengths, also recognizing that there are weaknesses and focusing more on my strengths gets me farther than being worried about my weaknesses. I did not pay you to say that. Um, <laughs> you know, this is part of my messaging, right? I always say, you know, let's focus on on where we get our energy and where we thrive. And I think sometimes it takes, you know, practice or being put in certain situations where, you know, as you evolve, you grow and you recognize what those strengths are. And it sounds to me like for you, it's been, you know, things again that are innate, but you never recognize them as strengths. And now you're maximizing and leveraging them. And now that's not to say that, you know, obviously we have to recognize areas where we want to grow and improve. Absolutely. That's part of growth, but focusing that energy on the things that you do, where you do thrive. And you're an example of, of that and, and where you've been able to, to really make an impact in, in your career based on how you're, you know, again, leveraging those strengths and, but also knowing your, your purpose. And I really appreciate you. You know, you're like, I'm going to be vulnerable here, but you have been super vulnerable this entire interview. And you've shared so much of yourself, not just on the podcast, but I think in general, in the work that you do, right. Cause you're constantly sharing that story. Cause it's part of what, you know, what you're doing in your, like you said, it's your passion. It's your, it's your career. It's the impact that you're you're making through your nonprofit. So constantly telling that story. And so, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for sharing that with, with us today. So I know that people are just going to, this is going to resonate with so many people in so many different levels. You know, you talk about your identity, you know, coming from Honduras, the American dream. I mean, so many things that you've talked about and covered today, I think are going to resonate with people of all walks of life. And so given your, your organization, uh, your nonprofit, how can people get involved uh, to support gifts from, from Liam? There are plenty of opportunities to get involved and support gifts from Liam. Um, you know, we'll, we'll take anything you got. If you have time, <laughs> you want to volunteer, we have plenty of volunteer opportunities, whether that's, uh, you know, high skills, that you want to volunteer, um, high level skills, or if it's, you know, we want to come do some manual labor, labor and, and help package diapers, anything in between, we'll take it. Um, if you have money, you want to donate, we'll gladly take that as well. Um, we do have our annual diaper drive coming up in just a few days. That is both as, as tradition, the way we celebrate Liam's birthday, which is September 29th. Um, but also to raise awareness about diaper need, the diaper gap, and bring in the diaper donations that support our diaper assistance programs. We also have, um, we started out with own disposable diaper assistance, and now we have a cloth diaper assistance program as well, providing free cloth diapers to families to effectively end diaper need. If you have a stash of cloth diapers um, available to you, even if you're not full-time cloth diapering, <clears throat> having a backup stash of cloth diapers. If you run out of your disposable, you can lean on those for, for a couple of days, a few days until you can get some more um, disposable diapers and not have to worry about where your next diaper is coming from. 
um, but supporting the diaper drive, uh, donating diapers, donating again, you know, dollars. We have drop-off sites throughout Chicagoland where people can can donate. We accept open packages of diapers. Um, we also have an Amazon wish list people can order from. Host a collection for us. You know, if you're if you work at a, a organization, a business that um, tries to be involved with the community, you can host a diaper drive for us any time of year. It doesn't have to be tied to diaper need awareness. Um, and yeah, coming out to volunteer at events, even spreading the word, everything helps, right? So lot, lots of ways to be involved and support, but definitely, you know, right now our big push is for supporting um, the diaper drive. Website that you'd like to share? Yeah, website is giftsfromliam.org. Uh, same social media, LinkedIn, all the channels. It's at giftsfromliam. Wonderful. And I will be sharing that in the show notes as well. And I will be plugging uh, the, the diaper drive and all the things and all the ways that people can support uh, Gifts from Liam. I think it's an incredible cause and organization. And of course, the person who manages the organization is amazing. <laughs> um, any final thoughts, Anna? Well, thank you for your kind words, Liz. And I guess um, final thoughts would be, as I know that um, you touched on it, that I ha- I'm deeply passionate about my nonprofit. I really have roots in my nonprofit because it came out of my personal experience. And so <clears throat> given that that your audience, you know, are folks who are looking at career counseling, career coaching, and maybe thinking about starting their own nonprofit. I see a lot of nonprofits out there that start from someone having empathy for Mm -hmm. someone else and wanting to meet that need, close that gap, provide that assistance. And that's wonderful. But that's where I think, and you asked me, why didn't you just go work for another MCH nonprofit that was already out there? Ironically, I did apply for a couple of different roles with different MCH nonprofits, which I didn't get. That's fine. Um, Didn't even want to start my own nonprofit. And Liam kept pushing me in that direction. So I did. Um, But I think in order for for a nonprofit to, to be truly successful, you really need to have that more direct, deeply rooted, personal connection. and. <clears throat> to really evaluate whether or not you have that. Like, what are the reasons for wanting to start a nonprofit? It, could you use that drive, that passion that you have for insert whatever the need is in supporting an already existing nonprofit? So for example, if someone's out there and they are really passionate about diaper need and the diaper gap, do you need to start your own diaper bank or can you support gifts from Liam, support another diaper bank, support another organization out there that's already working towards meeting that need. There are so many grassroots nonprofits getting started like gifts from Liam that could use that support, could use those people who are genuinely interested and passionate about that need that you don't, you don't need to go and start your whole other nonprofit. And that's where we see a lot of nonprofits that do fail or, you know, they do give up after, I, maybe give up is too strong of a word, but um, there's just too many challenges in the way because there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into running a nonprofit that um, I don't think most people are aware of or prepared for when they say, okay, I'll start a nonprofit. And maybe they have the ability and the means to fill out the paperwork, but they're not prepared for what comes next. And they don't mm-hmm. have the, the like, really their, their heels in it to really keep pushing forward and through all these challenges that come um, with with running a nonprofit, and um, you know, over time, they decide, you know, it's too much. This isn't for me, and they either pass it on to someone else, or or the nonprofit closes down entirely. And then that's a resource that we gave the community for a moment, and then we take it away, uh, but nobody let them know. So um, then we 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 get a lot of those. Um, patterns where we're referring folks to different resources that no longer exist. Um, So I think a lot of folks would be better equipped to partner up with an existing nonprofit organization, especially these grassroots nonprofits, um, and support the work that they're already doing, help them grow, help them build, give them your talent. Um, 
and work together. We, in, in Gifts from Liam, even a lot of the programs that we do offer, it's in partnership with other organizations. I don't believe in re- reinventing the wheel. Yeah. So even our cloth diaper program, we partnered with an existing nonprofit that's in Oklahoma called Permanent Diaper Relief to offer the, their framework of cloth diaper assistance in the Chicagoland area. The support groups that I facilitate are in partnership with other nonprofits, the Star Legacy Foundation and Return to Zero Hope. But I didn't need to start my whole own new group, rather partner leverage what's already out there. That is extremely insightful and something for people to really consider and not take this lightly, right? Because it's one thing, you know, having that passion and you're like, I want to be able to start a nonprofit because that's kind of where your mind goes because you care so much about about something or, you know, uh, an initiative, but you're saying, you know, really identify what is that, that, that true meaning and motivation. And can you, we maybe start with partnering, collaborating, because there's obviously there's so many nonprofits that, that can use the talent and the drive of people wanting to make an impact and a difference. And also the other key thing, which I always recommend and encourage people to do, regardless of where they, what they want to do is to talk to people that have gone through the process. So, you know, someone like you or other people that, that have started these nonprofits, because it's, it always sounds, you know, glamorous, or you see it on social media and you hear these stories and you see the successes, but you really want to hear like, okay, what is the nitty gritty? What does it really take? What does it really entail? And really being able to share that and, and, and hear from, from people like yourself. Um, so thank you for being honest and, and sharing. Yeah. A, I'm sure there's a ton of things that you didn't share today that, you know, are, are some of the challenges that you've experienced. But um, I think, like you said, that personal connection um, and Liam, right, tugging at you um, and making these decisions and, 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 and going forward with, with your organization. Um, I wish you so much success and everyone listening, please support gifts from Liam. Uh, again, you know, I, I wish you so much success in your organization and I can, based on what you've shared today, I know that it is going to thrive. Uh, and I'm so happy that you were able to share a little bit of your, of your story, uh, with us today. Thank you so much. I, I am, um, like I said, you know, truly honored to, to be invited to speak on, you know, my story and, and the topic of starting a nonprofit. Um, not something I ever really envisioned myself doing, but, but here I am. It is beautiful and it is challenging at the same time. And there's a lot of behind the scenes that isn't so pretty that uh, people running nonprofits don't, <laughs> don't post about. Oh, that's right. Thank you again, Anna. I am confident that everyone listening to today's episode has found some level of inspiration. And for many of us, it will take some additional processing. Thank you for listening. And I hope that you tune into future episodes. Please share this episode with anyone else who may benefit from hearing Anna's personal story and the key takeaways. Until next time, this is Liz Herrera, your career coach and job search ally.